Hey, Pitchfork gang, it's our one-year anniversary, and to celebrate, we're giving away some of our awesome, fun, trickle-down economics coffee mugs. So to get one, all you have to do is head to Instagram and follow us at Pitchfork Economics and comment on the mug post to enter. Uh, it's first come, first serve, while supplies last. You have been at the forefront of identifying and pushing back on one of the most corrosive elements of the modern neoliberal economy, which is concentrated wealth and power, monopoly power in particular. It's not just the big markets where you see this problem. You also see it in pretty much every market. So things like peanut butter or coffins or missiles and munitions or voting machines everywhere in our society. You've seen this concentration of power in our markets, in the hands of the few. This is sort of the physical manifestation of what you often talk about, which is the rise of plutocracy. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. Confessions of an American Capitalist, caught on tape. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today, we get to talk to uh, one of my favorite people, our old friend, Matt Stoller. Matt, as you know, and I know you agree, is just a really thoughtful, incisive thinker and writer. And he has this fantastic new book out called Goliath, um, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And he has been hard at work um, for a bunch of years at the forefront of this conversation about Monopoly power. Monopoly power, market concentration, concentrated wealth, concentrated power, and how it's damaging not just our uh, economy, but our it threatens our, our very democracy. That's right. And Matt is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute, and we've had his boss, uh, Barry Lynn, on the podcast right. before. And that organization is dedicated to this issue of monopoly power and concentrated corporate power. And, um, and they're doing, honestly, great work. They were ahead of the curve and have been instrumental in raising the issue of monopoly power and concentrated corporate power uh, into the public right. consciousness in and, a way that it wasn't before. And it's great timing for this book to come out because you're reading more and more about this issue every day, mm-hmm. and it's uh, really entering the political conversation, finally. Yeah. So it should be a great conversation. I can't wait to talk to Matt. My name is Matt Stoller. I am a writer and a former policymaker in Congress. I, I write a newsletter called Big, and what I'm here to plug is a new book that I came out with called Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And uh, we are super pleased to have you on our Pitchfork Economics podcast, Matt, because you have been at the forefront of both identifying and pushing back on one of the most corrosive elements of the modern neoliberal economy, which is concentrated wealth and power, monopoly power in particular. And your new book, Goliath, goes into 
how should we put it, Goldie? Uh, meticulous <laughs> detail. Pickety <laughs> um, like uh, detail. historical detail. On, on the history of these dynamics. So for our audience, why don't you start by just sort of outlining the argument you make in your book. Right. Just in, you know, in, in like two minutes, tell us, uh, summarize your 600-page book. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's 400 pages, oh, that's 200 right. pages of footnotes. That's what I mean by five meticulous. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't read the footnotes, but I read the book. Well, here's the thing. I put the footnotes in there because when you talk about, you know, billions of dollars of power, you better have some footnotes, right? It's <laughs> true. Right? Yeah. So so if you look around the world today, like what you'll see is, is a, a – a lot of people talk about a crisis of capitalism, but what's really going on is you have a crisis of monopoly. So it, it, pretty much every market you go into, sort of like the big ones would be, you know, search and social with Google and Facebook, but also airlines and cable. Everybody knows that those are very concentrated and they transfer wealth from uh, consumers and workers to uh, financiers. They create inequality in lots of different ways, including regional inequality. They corrupt our politics. But it's not just the big markets where you see this problem. You also see it in, in pretty much every market. So things like peanut butter or coffins or missiles and munitions or voting machines, just kind of like everywhere in our society, you've seen this concentration of power in our markets, in the, in the hands of the few. This is sort of the physical manifestation of what you often talk about, which is the, the rise of plutocracy. And they manifest their control over our lives, uh, over what we can buy and sell, over what we can say, uh, through their control of, of markets. Uh, now, now, a lot of people are like, ah, this is just kind of American capitalism, this is how it is. And what I show in Goliath is that that's not actually true. So in the first half of the 20th century, you know, we had this problem before. We had a, a robber baron problem with the very similar problems of, of inequality and corruption and a sort of soft corporatism. And I go into that with scary characters and fascinating villains like Andrew Mellon, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Wright Patman, who's this Texas populist congressman, kind of FDR, Robert Jackson, just like a whole group of people who fought against robber barons and defeated them. And there were these battles over how to do it and mass movements and marches and boardrooms and blood and sweat and tears. And that's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book starts from the 1950s when you've built a kind of imperfect democracy, but it's a kind of New Deal order where we've tamed this industrial power in the US and then globally. And it's the second half is why we allowed these robber barons to come back. And it's a very weird story. And it involves a lot of Basically, it's it's an indictment of both the left and the right. So I go into why the consumer movement emerged in the 1970s and why they accidentally changed our definition of self from citizen to consumer and invited the robber barons back into our lives. And then, uh, you know, you roll that forward. So in, in 40 years after the uh, late 1970s, when the consumer movement and the Chicago School of Law and Economics types uh, subverted antitrust law, you roll that forward 40 years and you see uh, this enormous concentration of power in every sector of our society, incredible dissatisfaction, anger, alienation, and so on and so forth. And that's the story of the book, but it's also a story of hope because what I wanted to show is that we've been here before, we've, we've taken care of this problem before, and then we allowed it to come back. So we can do it again, right? That's that's the issue. It's, it's always up to us. Every generation gets the choice about whether and I'll finish here, about whether to give up our liberties or to govern ourselves as a free people. Every generation gets that choice. And now it's our choice. And this is n not just a, a political choice. It's a 
It's an economic choice. I mean, that's one of the themes in our podcast is that economics is a choice. And the ideology that has led to the current regime of market concentration uh, is largely based on the idea that <laughs> that we that we don't have it that we don't have a choice that's just the way economics works can can you talk a little to how the emergence of that neoliberal ideology uh influenced uh policy in the US yeah that's a, it's such an important point because the number one objection to trying to do nice things for people until you know universal health care or or open markets or it's not oh well we like being controlled by these monopolists it's oh the problem is too big there's nothing we can do this is the only way to do it um, and that's a problem that's an ideology that emerged in the 1950s and it came from weirdly enough it came from socialists so so Richard Hofstetter is a historian John Kenneth Galbraith who's an economist C Wright Mills a sociologist and a series of people at Columbia they came out with this idea that economics just progresses naturally that power is not a thing that big business is big and monopolistic because that's just how progress works and that politics doesn't actually include banks or corporations politics is about personal liberation personal expression things like flag burning and so on and so forth and they created a different n historical narrative that we all understand the world in which deference to these kind of technocrats and what we call economists who frame themselves as scientists was the only way that you could handle this machine that we call the economy right and that's the um the narrative that you're talking about that neoliberal narrative of just inevitableism it's too big we can't it's it's out of the realm of human agency that that was created in the 1950s and it is the the central challenge that we have today is to persuade voters to persuade policymakers to persuade all of us as citizens that these choices are up to us that economics our economic system is a, is a is basically a bunch of political choices that we make and that we don't have to think about this as a science because it's not a science it's a it's a social set of social questions that we as citizens have as much right to talk about as anyone else and i think you know what's what's interesting is that you know the the, the way in which neoliberalism was so effective is in 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 sort of obscuring the fact that there that within that embedded within all of these choices are trade-offs that people should weigh and consider very very seriously obviously because i mean to be clear there are some benefits to scale economies and bigness right that there are um it's just that the <laughs> It's just that the costs um, may very well outweigh the benefits. And um, and the costs are not always purely economic. No, uh, no, that's what I mean, is that the, <laughs> right. costs, the costs extend across the range of human experience. Um, and the benefits are very, very clear. First of all, most of the benefits accrue to the owners. Right. <laughs> but... Um, but we, you know, like, uh, you know, again, one of the, one of the most, uh, I think corrosive things that neoclassical economics and neoliberalism did was that they assumed away power as a, as a dynamic in economics and in human economies, which is to me sort of like, uh, uh, uh proposing a physics, which does not include gravity. <laughs> and, right. you know, when in fact power is the currency of human affairs, uh, it's not this exogenous thing or you know thing that doesn't really exist and and um by assuming it away 
it, it, it enabled policymakers to accrete massive amounts of power to a very small group of people. But, and that, in turn, um, has resulted in the kind of crappy arrangement that we currently have, where a few people earn everything and most everybody else earns nothing. So, and, so, so you spend a whole chapter actually going after Galbraith. And um, he, he actually is one of the economists who, who talks about power exp- Explain at least explain for Nick because we've been talking about this in the office why his theory of countervailing power actually helped to enable uh, market concentration. Well, first of all, I just got a large amount of money from Google, so I've decided to take the other side of the argument now. <laughs> there I you just go. I disagree. It's a terrible book. Don't buy it. It's uh, everything is wrong. Um, Google is just helpfully organizing the world's information for us. So I don't even know why I'm here, but, um, uh, excellent. Okay. Sorry. I want to say that, um, I just feel like the billionaires don't get a lot of, of voice and I needed to speak for them. I know. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Right. So Galbraith is a beautiful writer, right? Wonderful writer. He's really funny. It's great to read. Um, I mean, it's just, he's really like a poet. And so it's hard to read these guys and not really like them. You know, Galbraith had a lot of great things to say, but what his basic framework of countervailing power was, um, it, was a, it was an argument, and, and it wasn't quite coherent because he changed it over time, but he basically just said, look, you don't need to worry about concentrations of power in business because there will be a natural response, right? So if you have a big steel company that forms, then naturally people will unionize to countervail the power of that steel company, and it is natural. If you have, say, a large... Um, packaged good manufacturer that forms, you will see a chain store naturally form to countervail that power and bargain on behalf of consumers, right? And he he just kind of like said, everywhere that you see a big institution form to capture power, you see other institutions forming that countervail that power. And so it is a natural automatic process that we do not need to deal with. Now, when he was criticized for this, right? And I, I went through his letters People were like, well, yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is, you know, unions were, were, were countervailing the power of, say, steel companies. But, you know, that was also a political choice, right? So the labor laws passed in the 1930s and then, you know, strikers ended up um, unionizing steel. But, but since, you know, basically the 1890s, the, the steel companies won, right? And they won until the 1930s. And it's like this didn't happen. To be clear, they killed a shitload of people <laughs> to, to prevail. Yes, they were. It was not a pleasant shot people. (laughs) Well, when you learn about the systems, right? I mean, so there's a couple of things. So like one of them, one of the really amazing things in this book is like the um, the (laughs) the uh, they would they would basically Henry Clay Frick, who kind of created the American uh, the framework for how the American working class would would live. He's kept bringing over immigrants from Eastern Europe to work in the mines, basically people who didn't speak the existing language of the current miners. So they couldn't unionize. And then when he brought over like Russians, they would actually say, oh, that the, the, the coal and iron police, which were Pennsylvania police that were hired by the miners to, let, to the mine owners, they called them Cossacks because they were like, oh, that's exactly what the czar used to do. Um, and Andrew Mellon was really good friends with not good friends, but he really supported uh, Mussolini and his brother. And this is a very power billionaire in the 1920s who owned and ran a lot of coal mines. His brother was asked by a senator, a progressive senator was like, hey, can you run a coal mine without machine guns? And Richard Mellon was like, well, I don't see how you could. And then he caught himself. He was like, oh, I, I didn't mean that. 
Um, but yeah, they were like shooting people, right? They were killing people. It was like a pretty constant thing. And then let's not forget that Jim Crow in the South, which was a part of the, the deal, like it was Northern monopoly capital and Southern racial oligarchs, that was fascism in the US. And that was based on a terrorist regime. So yeah, this was about, this was about um, there was a lot of murder involved in making sure that you could coercively keep these kinds of power arrangements going. So yeah, so so when you you kind of overlook that and you just say, <laughs> oh, these things are just kind of natural Inevitable. and automatic. <laughs> right. It's just it like it's just not true. Right. <laughs> these things involve power. Um, yeah. And it misleads people. So the other thing that that uh, John Kenneth Galbraith did is he said in 1958 he published this book called um, The Affluent Society. And his basic argument was America, we've solved the problem of economics, right? We solved the problem of corporate power. Uh, America just endlessly produces goods and services and jobs. And the question now is, what do we do about the consumption side of this, right? We've solved the production side. Corporations just do what they do. We don't need to worry about them. And that framework of affluence basically told liberals from 1958 onward don't worry about corporate power. It's not a thing. Don't worry about the economy. It's not a thing. And so 20 years later in the 70s, when you saw these breakdowns of inflation and crises in New York City going bankrupt and Penn Central, and I go and have the train system went bankrupt and all this like fun stuff. Uh, by the way, every financial crisis involves, for some reason, Florida real estate and Citibank. I'm not sure why, but this is something <laughs> I learned. Um, it's, it's in the book. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it, Galbraith... Um, <laughs> Galbraith um, uh, was was a um, you know and in the 1970s when all these things started going haywire because the New Deal systems were breaking down the liberals had nothing to say because they hadn't thought about political economy for 20 years because Galbraith told them not to. But just you know one of the points that you make in the book is uh, that uh, this is not a problem of the right that the left and right conspired um, or at least worked together, if not conspired, to bring corporate concentration back, that both political parties were infected by the same sort of assumptions and neoliberal ideas, and that the blame uh, sh should be placed, if, if not equ equally, and perhaps even more at the feet of... Uh, uh, Demo liberals. Well, you, you, yeah. you, you have a lot of blame that you lay at the feet of the Watergate babies. Basically, the, 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 the left, right? And, uh, you know, everyone's always like, what left are you talking about? It's not our fault. You know, and, and it's okay, fine. We can have that discussion. But basically, what I find is that the people that are interested in the problem of, say, Boeing, or the people that are pr interested in the problem of, like, the farm crisis, or the problem of big tech, whatever problem you want to look at, foreclosures, were not people on the left, and they were not people in the Democratic Party who basically are not interested in business and they are not interested in the military and they're not interested in power, right? The people who are interested in this are people who are conservatives, people in the military, and then people who make things, grow things, engineer things, producers, right? And the left, you know, which includes both sort of the like, you know, lack of a better word, like the MSNBC left or the Jacobin left, whatever, they kind of float in this world of symbols Right, which is divorced for paper pushing, which is divorced from actually trading or growing things or expressing ideas. It's just this weird fantasy land, right, where they're they're either addicted, they're addicted to powerlessness. It's a very strange dynamic. And that straight up comes from Galbraith, who told them power didn't exist, right? And that is what opens up 
the door to the law and economics people. Because if you don't govern, and this is what FDR said in 1938, weak democracies create dictatorships. Democrats have run weak democracies, and the left has allowed them to run weak democracies. Let's turn to solutions. Right. So if Matt Stoller was in, was the the benevolent the dictator, be, benevolent dictator. Question: Assuming you could be benevolent, yeah, which is Matt, which is going way out on a I, limb. I know I couldn't be anymore. <laughs> I used to I used to think I could be a benevolent but dictator. Let's, let's just stipulate you're benevolent dictator. <laughs> I will make the trains run on time. Okay. What <laughs> what should we do? Okay. Well, it's it's pretty simple. Uh, first of all, I would order everyone to buy this book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And then, and then immediately they would overthrow me as benevolent dictator. By the way, which would so, so actually, one of the first thing I would do is I would get power. all copies. Of this book. <laughs> I would get all co- if I were benevolent dictator, I would get all the copies of this book and burn them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I would. Um, okay. You know, what I would do? It's very simple. Okay. If something is too big, make it smaller. Right. Rule of thumb. The institutions across our society are too big, so let's start making them smaller. And you don't have to get rid of technical economies of scale. There's always this sort of sense, oh, we can, you know, the, the law and economics, the neoliberals want to say, oh, but you, you know, that just means that you want to like get us back to being like New England subsistence farmers who have to carve out our life from rocky soil. Like it's nonsense, right? It's like Google doesn't have to own a search engine and YouTube, right? That's just a legal arrangement. It has nothing to do with technical economies of scale. Right. And that's true across the economy. Like Amazon doesn't have to have AWS. Facebook doesn't have to have uh, Instagram, blah, 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 blah. Right. That's right. Um, and so I would just, you know, start chopping up companies, right? So that, I mean, this is what Wall Street does all the time. They have that this is investment banking, mergers and acquisitions. Just start making these companies smaller. And then, you know, the, the basic idea with the New Deal was you had four financial holding companies that were controlling the economy. They were, it was Rockefellers, Morgans, Mellons, and the DuPonts, right? And they each ran these informal giant financial holding companies. That's essentially what we have today, uh, except it's a, it's a slightly larger number of companies. And then you have private equity. So basically, if you just get rid of, you just make those companies smaller, you once again, break up the financial links and you you know, get rid of the pillaging and private equity, you'll basically have a, you know, you have to do a lot of other things, but you give me one thing to do. It would radically, radically restructure our economy and just make it a lot more fair and democratic. Uh, inherent in this is to get rid of that notion that the the only measure of consolidation should be its effect on the consumer, right? Yeah. I mean, it also, you know, if there's, you just really want one simple thing, I would just, you know, get rid of all the economists. That's the easiest thing to do <laughs> yeah. because because it's not even they don't even like yes they sure they say they're for you know consumer that they want to they want us to think of ourselves like consumers but really what that actually means is let's just have the economists do really complicated models to tell us what might be better for consumers in the future it's essentially hiring you know witch doctors on the payroll of plutocrats to tell us what to do so just get give that we've got to get rid of that because we got to like use our common sense so first, first kill, kill all the, the, economists. the economists that's not very Check. benevolent but <laughs> that, i didn't i didn't say that i said get rid of them they can get they, they can <laughs> you know what they can design a, a program for job assistance retraining for economists an economist wrote a paper called the china shock saying people's jobs moved to china and then the economists were like oh maybe people's jobs moved to china and it's like you know what F- fuck you right yeah. like they were saying it right like that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's not a science. It's not a discipline. It's just witch doctors who are on the pay who who are on the payroll of 
concentrated finance at this point. Right. At least some of them. We, we have some friends. Right. Okay. No, no. I mean, some of them are, some of them are fine. I just mean as a discipline. Yeah, as right? a discipline. As a discipline, it has been, uh, there's just no other way to say it, an egregious failure. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There we go. Okay, we're not going to make you dictator anymore. Let, let's talk about democracy a little bit here. You you quote Brandeis uh, in the book, uh, the famous quote that we can we can have democracy or concentrated wealth, but not both. Uh, now that you've talked a little bit about solutions, uh, tell us about the risks of where we're going from here. The actual threat to democracy that uh, concentration is posing. Well, I mean, I think you can see it really, you know, obviously with something like the um, China censoring the NBA, right? What What's happening is that we have concentrated our markets and censoring, censoring us through Disney, right? We've concentrated our markets to such an extreme extent that you have kind of private autocrats, whether that's, you know, whether it's, it's Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, other people like um, Larry Page or whoever, who are making decisions about how we structure our, um, our world, and we have no way to reach them, right? Because they control, Mark Zuckerberg controls how we communicate with one another. Um, and you have no other choice to communicate through social media except, you know, using one of Mark Zuckerberg's platforms. I mean, you have a little, a little bit of choice, but, but billions of people use his, his forums to communicate. And that level of concentration, right, enables other autocrats to come in and actually just start to rule us openly, right, and not allow us to have any form of democracy. So we're headed for a, a very scary world if we don't do something to restore open markets and uh, and the American way of life, and and that, and not just in the U.S. but all over the world. And I, I I'm seeing this incredibly vibrant debate that's it's just wonderful to see. And I do think that the the sort of spirit of liberty is reawakening in the hearts of the American people. And, and we really, that's, the, that's what's so cool about democracy. And that's what's so amazing about America. It's that really, if we do choose to govern ourselves, we can. Like, it really is up to us. And we have chosen not to be a free people for many decades. But we don't have to stay subservient. I know we're, we're, we're running out of time here, Matt. Uh, so we want to ask you, um, why do you do this work? I just hate bullies. And I think that the way that we have a bullying in our society at a scalable level is is in these boardrooms. And we have to stop this, you know, systematic bullying of all of us. And I just it's it's just a personal thing. I just I don't like seeing this level of injustice. I also think that it's just really fun to study business. It's like it's fascinating. It's exciting. It's interesting. Um, and I, I like I like teaching people about it. I think it's like it's very empowering. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, Pitchfork Economics Gang. The book is called Goliath by our friend Matt Stoller, The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And it, Matt, is, is it out in, in stores right now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's already hit. Yeah, yeah. We got an early copy. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, and the audio book, Nick. Yeah, and, and the audio. I know you book. like the audio books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can get it from that monopolist uh, Amazon. Yeah. Bastards. <laughs> yeah. Okay, man. Matt, thank you so much. It was great talking hey, to you. Hey, you guys are the best. Okay. Thanks so thank much. You. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.
so what do you think, Nick? Are you ready to elect uh, Matt Stoller, benevolent dictator? Absolutely. <laughs> I love the idea of collecting all the books and burning them first. <laughs> It's a very, a, a very dictatorial thing yeah, to do. Yeah. But the positive takeaway from from this book, uh, you know, as Matt right. said, is that we we dealt with this issue in the past, which yes. means we, we can, can deal we can, with it in the future today. A, and yeah. we have a roadmap for how to do it. That's right. And as you mentioned in our conversations with him, I think Americans are becoming more and more attuned and aware to the issue of concentrated power and clearer and clearer in their minds that it actually isn't benevolent. It isn't good for them. (laughs) That, in fact, what's good for Amazon.com may not be good for America. What's good for Exxon may not be good for America. What's good for America's plutocratic Wall Street titans may not be good for them in America. But, you know, boy, that was a story that was told both by Republicans and Democrats for Right. Generations. The, the, right? the, big, the yeah. bigger, the better. Yeah. The more efficient, right. great economies of scale brings down prices. Right. But you know, there was a, re- a report just this week that showed that the average American is paying about $5,000 a year right. more due to market concentration. Yeah. And the failure of that study is that it's, again, only focusing on consumers. What it's not looking at, and we've talked about this it's a lot, is how much less people are yeah. earning exactly. because of monopoly power. Exactly. And we can actually quantify exactly how much people are are earning less than if they had tracked productivity growth. And in fact, for the typical family in America, it earns about $60,000 in income a year. If they had not been savaged by 40 years of neoliberalism, they'd be earning close to $100,000 right. a year. So and, it, and, it, and, and, it adds up. <laughs> and for those of you yeah. who still can't let go of the supply-demand curve in your Econ 101 uh, textbook, the opponents to the minimum wage, the $15 minimum wage, um, their argument was, uh, you, if you pay above marginal product, it's just going to destroy jobs because companies won't be able to afford to employ you because they'll lose money on you, yes. right? Right. And what's happened everywhere we've raised the minimum wage? Unemployment has gone down. Uh, right. Jobs yeah. have gone up. It hasn't yeah. cost jobs at all. So what does that tell you if your Econ 101 is right? That people were actually making less than their marginal product because all that market concentration, all that monopsony power, again, check your Econ 101 textbook, was was depressing wages. Right. Too much power in the hands of too few people and corporations. But let's just acknowledge that the principle of marginal productivity (laughs) is a fraud I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I'm just trying to appeal to the the Econ 101ers. Yeah. (laughs) What few of them are left in our you, audience. You know me, always bu- <laughs> always building bridges, Nick. I know. And then luring them out onto it and, and then, then blowing, blowing them up, up the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it was a great conversation with Matt. It's a really neat and important book and remarkably detailed in its analysis. Right. And- you can find the book everywhere, not just from the big online monopolist. You can find it in your local bookstores yeah. or... Uh, You can wait and get in line at the library. There you go. But read the book. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.